Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and nice people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and today we're back with Dr. Kathy Peterson to learn about dysautonomia and the autonomic nervous system. These topics are important because they can help us better understand POTS. You may recall that Dr. Kathy Peterson is a professor of biology and neurobiology at Wittenberg University. She's a POTS researcher, a mother of a POTS patient, and founder and president of Standing Up to POTS. Welcome, Dr. Peterson, and thank you for being our professor today. Thank you so much, Jill, for inviting me back. I am really excited to be with you and with everyone who's listening to hopefully help you better understand what POTS is and and really how some of the symptoms are related to this autonomic nervous system that we're going to talk about. So let's dive right in. What is the autonomic nervous system? And what is this related word that we always hear, dysautonomia? Boy, that's, that's the meat of the question right there. So I'm going to start with the second part, which is what is dysautonomia? And I think lots of folks have heard that term. And POTS is, is a type of dysautonomia. If you break down the word, dys means abnormal. And the autonomia is talking about the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is the automatic part. It's involuntary, and it controls lots of our organ systems that we never give a thought to until they don't work. So dysautonomia is like a, it's an umbrella term, like cancer is an umbrella term where maybe someone has melanoma or somebody else has lung cancer and someone else has breast cancer. They all fall under the umbrella of, of cancer. We see the same thing with dysautonomia. So there are about 15 different types of dysautonomia, but POTS is by far the most common one, and certainly that's the one that we're here to talk about today. So when you say involuntary and automatic functions, what are some examples of those things that the autonomic nervous system controls? I think a lot of our listeners might know heart, your heart rate would be one of those. And a lot of people with POTS have, have issues with that. But there's so much more than that. Uh, blood pressure could be related here, respiratory rate, pupil diameter. My daughter used to have terrible problems when she was in about fifth grade. And the lights in the school were fluorescent. And it gave her terrible headaches. She was really uncomfortable. I had to write to the principal to ask them to either let her wear sunglasses or a hat or uh, turn out the lights in the room. I was literally asking for my daughter to be put in a dark corner. And that's because, that's because you've got this involuntary response that opens the pupil of the eye or closes it down depending on the environment. And it doesn't always work, unfortunately, in people that have POTS. There are other things too, though. So digestion is one, and I know a lot of POTS patients have issues with their digestive system as well. 
And then I think another one we hear about pretty often is temperature. People are either feeling chills all the time or they're too hot or their body temperature doesn't seem to be very normal. Is that part of the same issue? Absolutely. Uh, And my daughter, when she was 10 and 11, it was really sort of scary. It took us a while to figure out what was going on. And I teach about the autonomic nervous system. I'm a college professor. I teach human anatomy and physiology and neurobiology. I talk about this stuff every year. And I never truly appreciated how much the autonomic nervous system did for us until my daughter got ill. But she would be freezing. We would run and and put blankets, three, four blankets on top of her and just could not get her warm. And then the next day, she, she was like a menopausal woman. I mean, she was hot flashing, her face turned red, you could see the sweat coming off of her. So absolutely, temperature regulation is being controlled by that autonomic nervous system. And it's interesting because the autonomic nervous system has a couple of parts to it. And there's an interplay between these different parts. So the one in POTS and the one that I think you, Jill, have problems with is the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight system. So if you're talking about fight or flight, I know that one. Yes, I do have issues with that one. It's interesting because the sympathetic nervous system is really made for emergencies. You know, something has happened. You've been in a car accident or something happened at work or at home and you get this automatic response. This is not something that you can control that gears you up like it says to either run and get away from the danger or stand your ground and fight. So that's the fight or flight sort of response. And in short durations, that's actually a really good thing. So what you'd see is that the heart rate goes up, the blood pressure goes up, they start constricting the blood vessels so that you're moving that blood back up towards the heart and towards the brain. Respiratory rate goes up. So if you're trying to fight a bear, then you need to get as much oxygen and blood to those muscles as you possibly can. And then that pupil dilation, you're trying to take in the scene. You're trying to figure out where the danger is and what you need to do is also part of this. Now, what's mediating all of this is that your brain, parts of the brain that control the sympathetic nervous system, start to release neurotransmitters and hormones that are called norepinephrine and epinephrine. And the old name for these actually used to be adrenaline. And so these are adrenaline hormones that you've got circulating through the body to get you ready for whatever, whatever that problem was. In the long term, the problems are bigger. So for you, Jill, and for many of our listeners, the sympathetic nervous system is overactive. It's, it's firing too much. People talk about sympathetic surges. I know my own daughter has sympathetic surges. Uh, energy levels maybe go up. They get very anxious, fearful, that, that sort of thing. And that prolonged sense of fight or flight is being perpetuated by a gland that's right above your kidney. It's called the adrenal gland. So the adrenal gland also has the ability to release norepinephrine and epinephrine, 
but it also kicks in its own mix. So the adrenal gland can also release a family of hormones that are called glucocorticoids. And these prolong that stress response. And we'll come back and talk about what happens when we have a prolonged response. But Jill, I'm going to throw it back to you. Can you give us some examples from your daily life of where you really feel the sympathetic nervous system? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost all day, every day. <laughs> um, and I think where I feel it the most is that I'm, I'm quite jumpy. I oftentimes have a hard time sitting still and concentrating because I feel like a tiger in a cage. I definitely notice that my digestion does not feel like a priority to my body. And I do have a need to be a little bit restless most of the time. And I, I know my understanding is that this sympathetic response is a little bit of the response that would save you if you have to run from a tiger on the, in the savanna. And it's meant to be a short-term thing to help you exercise and either fight or flee and save your life, that it's not designed to be long-term. And so I definitely feel the wired and tired feeling. I don't know if it's related, you can tell me, but it also, I think, makes it hard to settle down at night. It makes it difficult to sleep. So you have a body that's wired and a head that's tired, or at least I do. That's my experience. Is, is the sleep, do you think, related to some of this? I think it can be. And I, I hope that you and I do another episode on this in the future. But I will say that my daughter has sympathetic surges as well. And her physician a number of years ago determined that the reason that she was having so much trouble sleeping at night is because she was getting these sympathetic surges at night. So what I mean by that is her brain, her body is releasing this norepinephrine when she's really supposed to be laying down and, and resting and, and getting to sleep. And it's impossible to do that when your body's having that kind of sympathetic surge. She takes a medication, we'll come back and talk about that, that helps to quiet that down. And that has helped her sleep so much. But this overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system can be very prevalent in people with POTS. Let's talk about the other half of the autonomic nervous system before we get too far into the sympathetic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system, again, is that automatic part that we don't think about. And so on the one hand, what we just talked about was that sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response. But on the other hand, we have what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. And sometimes people call that the rest and digest part of your nervous system. I've heard it called the housekeeping or maintenance part of the nervous system. Where really what, what the parasympathetic nervous system is trying to do is keep your body in what we call in biology, we call it homeostasis. Meaning that you're maintaining your cells, you're getting enough nutrients, you're building proteins, you're doing everything that your cells and your organs and your body needs to do and feel good. And so most of the time, this parasympathetic nervous system this rest and digest system should be dominating. This is the one that most people should have as their baseline all of the time. Now it uses another neurotransmitter and, and hormone called acetylcholine 
So with the sympathetic nervous system, we had norepinephrine and epinephrine. With parasympathetic, we have acetylcholine. Now, I, I've used a couple terms that I probably ought to define. One is neurotransmitter. And I know some of you know what that is, but I just want to be sure that everybody does. A neurotransmitter is a chemical that's made naturally in our brain. And it's released by one brain cell, one neuron, to talk to the next one. And we have lots of different neurotransmitters. So I think one of the most famous ones is probably serotonin. And people know that because they know it's implicated in depression and anxiety. So serotonin's really famous. Probably the next most famous one is dopamine. That's part of the pleasure system. But when we talk about the sympathetic nervous system, it's mainly norepinephrine with its, I call it its kissing cousin, it's an epinephrine in there. And so that's a different kind of neurotransmitter. And then parasympathetic nervous system with acetylcholine. What's tricky about this is that these, these neurotransmitters sometimes can also be used as a hormone. It's exactly the same chemical. So if you were an analytical chemist and you took norepinephrine out of the brain and you took it out of the heart, it would be exactly the same chemical. The difference is that a hormone travels through the bloodstream by definition has to travel through the bloodstream. So we can have two identical molecules norepinephrine. We call it a neurotransmitter when it's being released from one neuron to the next. We call it a hormone when it's moving through the bloodstream and going to some target somewhere else in the body. So those are a couple of terms. There's the college professor coming out, right, to, to talk about that. Well, that's really interesting to me, partially because obviously one issue with POTS is there's so many different symptoms, and so many of them seem unrelated, and they're all over the entire body, could part of the issue be that you have something like adrenaline acting as a neurotransmitter in the brain causing some symptoms, but acting as a hormone in the body causing other symptoms? That's absolutely right. So that wired feeling in your brain, not being able to focus, wanting to feel kind of restless and move your attention around, that's the neurotransmitter part. The heart rate part, the digestion part, a lot of those others is, is sort of the hormone part of norepinephrine really wreaking havoc with your system. So I think one comforting thing to me, the more I study the autonomic nervous system, is that it starts to explain why there can be so many different symptoms. And I know that maybe it doesn't account for all of them, but I know there's uh, that many of us in our journeys to get diagnosed, we heard that we were crazy or that this was all in our head, but a lot of it might just have been in our autonomic nervous system. Is that what I'm hearing? That's a perfect way to put it. Okay, so back to the parasympathetic response. Specifically, what does that look like in the body? So what's interesting is it's the exact opposite of the sympathetic response. So remember, sympathetic is fight or flight. You're gearing up to get yourself out of danger. Parasympathetic is going to relax you. So think about after eating a meal, all you want to do is sit in the recliner and rest a little bit, read a book, or close your eyes for a few minutes. That's when your parasympathetic nervous system is really active. And so it's going to increase digestion 
because often when our parasympathetic nervous system is really at its best, we've just eaten. So we're moving blood flow away from our muscles and to the gastrointestinal tract, to our digestive tract. So we're increasing digestion. We're trying to get all those nutrients into the bloodstream and out to the rest of the body. But while you're in the recliner or on the couch, your heart rate starts to drop, right? You're feeling very relaxed. Your blood pressure comes down. Those blood vessels actually dilate out again, which drops that blood pressure down. The respiratory rate is decreasing because I'm not jazzed up. I'm relaxed. I don't need as much blood to the muscles. I don't need as much oxygen to the muscles at this point. And what's interesting about the parasympathetic nervous system is that there's one nerve that seems to be very, very important in mediating this effect. And the nerve is called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is one of 12 cranial nerves. And I know it sounds like I'm getting jargony. Cranial nerves are nerves that come directly off the brain. And most of the cranial nerves stay up in the head and face region. But the vagus nerve is sort of the weird one because it comes down through the neck and it goes into the chest but it goes even further. It actually goes down to the abdominal cavity to help us regulate what's going on in the GI tract. So this vagus nerve is actually going to come down from the brain and it has some, some innervation on the heart directly. It goes down and it innervates the stomach and the intestines directly. And again, really gives us that rest and digest, that homeostasis baseline that we have and can think about right after we've eaten. So this is interesting to me as someone who's always, you know, looking for the possible new treatments on the horizon, but I believe that there's a lot of interest in figuring out ways to stimulate the vagus nerve to help POTS patients get more of this balance to their autonomic nervous system. And maybe in future episodes, we can talk more about that. But it it shows that this vagus nerve, some researchers do believe that this might be kind of a door into hacking this whole system, I think, right? It's a really interesting idea. I think we're in early days as far as stimulators of the vagus nerve. But there is some possibility. I mean, the, the basic science would suggest that this could be helpful at not decreasing the sympathetic response, but rather increasing the parasympathetic response. Let's think about heart and heart rate. And what I want our listeners to understand is that there's norepinephrine being dropped on the heart, that sympathetic nervous system, and there's acetylcholine being dropped on the heart, that's parasympathetic nervous system, really all the time. And so both of these parts of the autonomic nervous system are going to our same organs. And what changes the way that you feel, and in the case of the heart, how fast your heart is beating, is the balance. So if you have a lot of sympathetic activity, or sometimes we call that sympathetic tone, right? Lots of norepinephrine is being dropped on the heart, your heart rate goes up. But if the parasympathetic nervous system is winning, We've got lots of acetylcholine being dropped on the heart. That slows that heart rate down. 
and then you're relaxed, right? And feeling like maybe you could take a rest. Uh, and so we've always got this constant interplay everywhere that we've got these. So a pupil is responding to sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. The heart is doing the same. Your GI tract is doing the same. And so our body's constantly monitoring what's going on sort of internally and externally, and it will turn up or turn down these parts of our nervous systems depending on what it decides it needs to do. But again, it's out of our control. It's all automatic, which is great for me because I happen to not have POTS, but it's not so good for you, Jill. It's not so good for a lot of our listeners, and it's not so good for my daughter. And so this does, this really wreaks havoc for folks when they have loss of control or good control over the autonomic nervous system. So this is reminding me of another thing that we hear about in biology, and I'm wondering if it is similar, and that is inflammation. We always hear that inflammation is necessary and important, but it's meant to be a Cute to address a particular problem or an emergency, and then it's meant to go away. And it's only a problem when it is chronic. So is that kind of the same thing with this sympathetic tone that it was kind of designed to deal with emergencies, but in POTS patients, it might be on too much too often? That's exactly right. And as I'm thinking about this, you know, maybe for some of our listeners, they could identify or know someone that has post-traumatic stress disorder. That's sort of another one where they get these sympathetic surges. So some reminder of a trauma or something that happened in their past, instead of a little bit of sympathetic response of norepinephrine, their system goes haywire. Now it's not as much as POTS, but it may last for 20 or 30 minutes instead of 20 or 30 seconds. So POTS is not the only one where we see these sympathetic surges or dysautonomia is not the only cluster of, of disorders that see this, but it can really be debilitating. What can be done about this? Anything? Well, it's really interesting. I think there are some things that can be done. And I think that some of our listeners probably have been diagnosed with hyperadrenergic POTS. I think you've mentioned previously that you've been diagnosed with this version. I ought to give a disclaimer. Not all physicians believe that POTS should be divided into categories or they don't agree on what the categories should be. But there are a group of well-known physicians who do divide into sort of a neuropathic cluster, a hyperadrenergic cluster, a hypovolemic cluster. But hyperadrenergic, so again, here's the terms. This is why no one likes biology, Jill, because <laughs> we change these terms all the time. It's terrible. Adrenergic is talking about norepinephrine. So when you say hyper, think of a, a child who's hyperactive. They have too much energy. So hyper means excessive. Adrenergic is talking about norepinephrine. So someone who's been told that they have hyperadrenergic POTS likely has big surges or maybe a constant high levels of norepinephrine that's in their blood all the time. So again, that hormone is being released into the blood and affecting their heart, affecting their respiratory rate, affecting their 
their digestion, and of course in the brain also making them feel very anxious and stressed and worried about things that, that might be happening or, or could happen. Particularly for people that have a hyperadrenergic form of POTS where the sympathetic nervous system seems to be particularly overactive and out of control, there are a couple of approaches that we can take medically to try to decrease those feelings, right? Those symptoms of POTS. The most popular approach and the one that you're probably thinking and our listeners are probably thinking as I'm talking are medications that are going to decrease the effect of the sympathetic nervous system. Or the way a physician would say it is decrease the sympathetic tone. Again, that's talking about how much norepinephrine is being released in the brain and how much norepinephrine is being released into the blood and all these organs that we've been talking about. Many, many of our listeners are taking medications to help decrease the sympathetic tone. A huge category to do this are beta blockers. And I know from the support groups that I'm a member of and and monitor that beta blockers are very, very common for lots of folks that have POTS. And the way that a beta blocker works, and it probably ought to tell you the long name for it, it's a beta adrenergic antagonist or blocker. And adrenergic, do you remember what that was? Yeah. It's the other word for norepinephrine, right? So when someone's taking a beta blocker, what they're doing is they're going in and literally blocking the norepinephrine receptors, mainly out in the body. Depending on what beta blocker they're taking, it may or may not make it through the blood-brain barrier and, and get into the brain in significant amounts. They block this norepinephrine receptor. Now what I need to tell you is that the way that a body, your body senses how much norepinephrine is there is by how many receptors, norepinephrine receptors or adrenergic receptors are bound by norepinephrine. So if we have a receptor that's now been blocked by the medication, my level of norepinephrine can be high, but my body doesn't see it. So let's think about if that norepinephrine receptor is on the heart and the medicine comes in and it blocks that, then my heart doesn't know the norepinephrine is there. Norepinephrine's job at my heart is to increase the force and the rate of contraction. So when I take that beta blocker and I block that receptor, what we see is the opposite. So the heart rate drops and the force of the contraction of the heart muscle also drops as a, as a result of that. There are many, many, many different beta blockers. We're not going to list them all here. But one that's really common is propranolol. So if you see the O-L-O-L at the end of your medication, you're probably taking one of these beta blockers. So most of the beta blockers end with O-L-O-L. So that's one thing that you can take and very, very common. My daughter happens to not take that. She does not take any sort of a beta blocker. She takes the other major class that you can use to decrease sympathetic tone, decrease the impact of the sympathetic nervous system on your body, right, or these organ systems. And the category, these names are terrible, folks. The category is called centrally acting sympatholytic drugs. 
So centrally acting means that this medication is going to go through the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. And it affects a part of your brain that's important for all of your, what I call life functions in my classes. So heartbeat, heart rate, respiratory rate, all of these are being taken care of by a part of the brain called the medulla. So centrally acting means that it's getting in through the blood-brain barrier and directly affecting the brain. Sympatho means sympathetic nervous system, and lytic means to break. So the name is telling us it's going into the brain to break the sympathetic nervous system. We're going to go after the same thing. We're going after norepinephrine again because that is the neurotransmitter of our sympathetic nervous system. In the beta blockers, we were blocking the norepinephrine receptor. Norepinephrine was still being released, we were blocking the receptor. In the centrally acting sympatholytic drugs, and the one my daughter takes is clonidine, and maybe many of our listeners, I think this is another very common medication in POTS, clonidine. It blocks the release of norepinephrine in the first place. So it's going right into the brain and preventing the sympathetic nervous system from releasing norepinephrine. So beta blockers block the receptor. Our body doesn't see it. If our body can't see that norepinephrine is there, it doesn't respond to it. And then the other class of drugs to decrease that sympathetic tone is preventing the release of norepinephrine in the brain. And so clonidine is an example of that. So let me go back. So we were talking about medical approaches to dealing with this imbalance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And the first one was to decrease the sympathetic tone, decrease the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. The other way is to increase the activity of its opposite, to increase the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system. That was the rest and digest part of the nervous system. So again, remember, think of it like a balance. And if you've got a lot of sympathetic nervous system activity, then you feel fast heart rate and high blood pressure and and you're digestive system maybe is going crazy. But if we could increase the parasympathetic nervous system, we may not be decreasing what the sympathetic is doing, but we change the ratio in the brain and in the body. So there are medications that we can use to increase the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system or the parasympathetic tone. My daughter actually takes one of these too. So notice she's taking one that's decreasing the sympathetic nervous system. And then she's taking another one that's increasing the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system. The one that she takes for the parasympathetic nervous system is called peridostigmine, mestinon. And this works in a different way. So remember that we said that the neurotransmitter for the parasympathetic nervous system is acetylcholine. And usually what happens is we release that acetylcholine and it goes and it binds to its receptor and then it bounces back off and an enzyme will break it down and then the cell that released it picks it back up again. So that's normally what happens. The way that peridostigmine or mesanon works is by inhibiting that enzyme. 
And so it's not changing how much acetylcholine is being released, but it's allowing it to build up in the synapse. And as I get more and more acetylcholine, I'm changing the ratio in my brain between the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. And that makes a difference. It makes people feel more relaxed. It decreases their heart rate. It decreases their respiratory rate and can really help. Now, my daughter, we think that she developed POTS after getting mononucleosis or mono. So it was after a virus that she seems to have contracted when she was 10. Turns out this medication is particularly good for people that develop POTS after a virus. So folks that are developing POTS after COVID, that got it after Lyme disease, that got it after mono, pyridostigmine or mestinon seems to be particularly good for those folks. It also seems to work very well on people that may have an autoimmune version of POTS. Now, I have to say, I think a lot of times those two go together because as your immune system was trying to attack that infection, somehow it made a wrong turn. It's got a a case of mistaken identity, and now it's attacking your own tissues long after that virus is gone. So it's not great for everybody, but it, it does work very well for my daughter. This is complicated, Jill, so I'm waiting to hear what kinds of questions you have. Well, this is a ton of great information. It makes me appreciate how smart and sophisticated our bodies are and our drugs. And frankly, it makes me appreciate how many autonomic functions my body is still getting right, despite the dysautonomia. So some people might be wondering about some of the natural approaches to trying to get more of a balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, because I think most of Western society would say they've got too much stress, they're always in a hurry, their adrenaline can be high just from all of the pressures of daily life. And so we're seeing a huge industry of things like meditation and yoga and stretching and things that try to help put it back in balance. And there's no harm in trying those things, right? To try to achieve more balance between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous systems. That's absolutely right. And we've seen specialists that have recommended meditation that can really help you get better in touch with your body and understand your body. That didn't work very well for my daughter, to be honest. But I really feel like doing some sort of a calming ritual, whatever that is, for you can be hugely helpful. And whether that's meditation or it's yoga or it's walking, taking a little bit of time for yourself, trying to de-stress, I think can be really important. I want to throw in here that a lot of people are misdiagnosed as having anxiety in particular when their sympathetic nervous system is overactive because they are anxious, they're jumping around all of the time, their thoughts are jumping from one thing to another, and they do feel heart racing, some of the physical symptoms that a lot of clinicians and psychologists might attribute to anxiety. And I imagine a fair number of our listeners, I wish we could see them raise their hand, say, yes, this happened to me. I was first diagnosed with anxiety, and eventually I was, I was diagnosed with POTS or dysautonomia. And it's very difficult to say in the defense of the practitioners, 
without doing a tilt test or being able to see some other kind of physiological mechanism, it, it is very difficult to tell them apart. But we need to be doing those standing tests faster. We need to have a low threshold for doing a standing test just to see if there's an increase in heart rate when folks stand for a few minutes. So Kathy, can you talk more about the stand test and how that would help a physician or a patient determine whether some of their anxious appearing symptoms are just anxiety or are POTS? Of course. The standing test is a really quick and simple assessment for the more physiological undertones that we've been talking about today and will pick up that dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. So what you do is you have that patient lay down for about five minutes, take their pulse, have them stand up, and after two minutes, four minutes, six minutes, have them take that pulse again. And if it's POTS, you'll see an increase in their heart rate, a significant increase. So for an adult, by 30 beats per minute, or for a child or teenager, by 40 beats per minute. If that person just has anxiety, and I shouldn't say just has anxiety. Anxiety can be debilitating. But if, if POTS is not in the mix, you would not expect to see the sympathetic nervous system kick in in this way to cause that increase of heart rate. So that's the big difference that we can see. The stand test. It all comes down to the stand test. Absolutely. Well, hopefully there's some physicians out there listening, because we all know many, many patients who went years without a diagnosis, and the whole time a simple stand test could have identified POTS. So I think that's great information, and that's a great nugget to hopefully leave in people's minds. Is there anything else we should get out there about the autonomic nervous system? I think that it's a system that's really understudied, and most people don't think about it until it goes awry. And so again, folks with POTS are really feeling the, the ravages of their autonomic nervous system. And again, that real overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system that is linked to so many of their really debilitating symptoms. And speaking from experience and knowing how long the wait time is to get in to see an autonomic neurologist, I think there are not very many of them. I think there's a lot of neurologists out there, but not very many that are specializing in the autonomic nervous system. So maybe that's something we can hope will change in the future too. Absolutely. And I think we've come a long way. My daughter was diagnosed eight years ago. And there was very little information out there on POTS at that time. And I think there are a number of organizations, and Standing Up to POTS, of course, is one of them, that is really working to push this community to the forefront and to make the disorder known. And if people have heard of it, as you mentioned a minute ago, doing a stand test takes 10 or 15 minutes in the office. It's quick. It's cheap. And it can make a huge difference in the quality of life for that individual and their family. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson, for a fantastic lesson. To everybody listening, we hope you found this helpful. We'll keep having more episodes with Dr. Kathy Peterson to keep learning the POTS basics. And in the meantime, 
Remember, you're not alone, and please join us again soon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org slash podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.